This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. Welcome back. It's good to see you all. Good to see you this week. Like every week, I want to thank you if you're here in person. I want to thank you if you're here on the Zoom. I want to thank you if you're watching this later on any type of platform or listening to it later. We are now on back onto the, all the podcasts under the name Jewish Living with Burnham. So if you want to find the classes that I give, you can find them under Jewish Living with Burnham. You can find them in Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Stitcher. I also want to thank the amazing folk over at Yeshua Beth Yehud and Partners Detroit, which is actually not over. It's right here. Right here at Yeshua Beth Yehud and Partners Detroit for hooking us up so nicely every week. And I want to thank the amazing staff over at Torah Anytime. It's an app, it's a website, and it's filled with incredible Jewish knowledge. And now we're going to delve into just an example of incredible Jewish knowledge. We are now learning Parshas Noach, the story of the Great Flood. Alrighty. So I want to start off just with the, uh, you know, the Torah starts off with the, with the following verse. Ela toldos Noach. These are the offspring of Noach. Noach ish tzadik tamim hayabadorosav. Noach was a tzadik. He was righteous. Tamim hayabadorosav. Perfect in his generations. Es hayalokim hisalech Noach. Noach walked with God. And then it says, Vayolad Noach shlosha banim. Noach gave birth to three children, as Shem, as Cham, as Yafes. Shem, Cham, and Japheth. No, Shem, Cham, and Yafes. Right? People call me up like, Rabbi, tell me more about this character, Ham. Because <laughs> that's how you spell him in English. Okay, fine, Cham. So, Shem, Cham, and Yafes. Now, fascinatingly, the first thing the Torah says when it tells you these are the offspring of Noach is it doesn't tell you his offspring. It tells you that he was perfect and he was good, he was a good person, which teaches us a very, very important lesson in general. That even more than the actual physical children that we bear out into the world, our offspring and the deeds that we do has a ripple effect throughout the whole world. And meaning, so if a person does good deeds, even if they don't have any biological children, those good deeds are their offspring. And the good that it brings to the world is incalculable. That's what, in, yeah, incalculable. That is what is going to, at the end of the day, be who you are. The legacy you leave behind, more than your children, more than the companies you worked for or owned, more than the retirement, more than your best round of golf at the Doral in Florida. <laughs> At the end of the day, your offspring is going to be your actions. Noach's offspring was Ish Tzadik Tamim Hayabaderosav. He was a man, he was righteous, he was good. That is his offspring. Baruch Hashem, this past week was uh, my father-in-law's yard site on, on Sunday. And uh, my mother-in-law is here. It's good to see you here, Ma. The learning today should be Azchus for the Eloi Neshama of my father-in-law. Rabbi Zelig ben Rabbi Leib. And he was a man who, Baruch Hashem, he raised a beautiful family. And lots of amazing children and grandchildren. But if you look at, it, at his tombstone, which we just visited recently to pray about, most of what it says on his tombstone is not necessarily, there is, it says that he, 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 up, you know, he brought forth generations of good people, whatever. But most of what it says is about the good deeds that he did. Right? It is like a little poem, sort of, on his tombstone. He was always on time for davening. You know, he always had a safer in his hands. He was always studying Torah. He never said a bad word about people. He didn't lift his voice. He was, you know, he was an example of just honesty and kindness and, de- and dedication. That's his offspring. 
Baruch Hashem, the next pasuk of his life is that he had children. Noach, the first thing it says about him is, these are his offspring. Who was his offspring? He was a tzaddik. He was a righteous person. He was a tamim. He was a perfect person. And he walked with God. That's the first thing. That's, if you want to tell me about somebody, that's the first thing you've got to tell me. Next, hopefully, the, the, the other legacy is a secondary legacy. Super important, by the way. But secondary. Your ultimate legacy is who you are and the actions that you do. Are you a tzaddik? Are you righteous? Do you walk with God? Okay. Now, I want to just tell an amazing story that I saw today when it talks about a tzaddik and a tamim. The word tzaddik often means somebody who is able to hold himself back from taking that which does not belong to him. Who's called a tzaddik? Yosef HaTzaddik. Joseph, the righteous man, who did not want to engage in a relationship with Mrs. Potiphar, because he said, how could I, this is not mine. Right? So he's called a tzaddik. And we know that the generation of the Mabel, the generation of the flood, their punishment was sealed for the sin of thievery. We're going to get into that shortly, because when I look out over here, I see there's a lot of thieves over here, so we're going to, we're going to delve into it in great length today. Right? But that was actually, it says that from all the Averas that they did, it says that Vetimolei Haaretz Chamas, the world, Kimolei Haaretz Chamas, the world was filled with thievery. Now there was a lot of things going on in the time of the flood. A lot, a lot of things that were going on bad. People were acting in all kinds of immoral ways. But ultimately, what sealed the deal? Rashi tells us, Kimolei Haaretz Chamas, the world was filled with thievery Ultimately, what did them in, the straw that broke the camel's back, right, was that they were a society in which thievery became rampant and commonplace. So, tzaddik first refers to an idea. So, who was the, the alternative to that? Who was the opposite of that? Noah. Noah was a tzaddik. A righteous man. Doesn't take anything that doesn't belong to him. A tamim means perfect. Perfect is even a higher level. Later on, when we get to Leviticus, right, and we're going to talk about the various offerings, almost at every single offering, the verse specifies that the animal brought for the offering needs to be a tamim, needs to be a perfect animal. Listen to this amazing story that happened. And just, again, I I love telling amazing stories that are way beyond my grasp. I never would be able to do that. But I just feel good knowing that I'm part of the people that produces human beings like this. The story goes back about 120 years ago. No, probably 140 years ago, in the late 1800s. There was a very wealthy widow who was sick. And she had a young daughter. She only had one child. She had a young daughter who was of marriageable age. And she had a considerable fortune. So at the end of her life, she called her daughter in when it was time for her to settle her affairs, so to speak. He called her, she called her daughter in and she said, look, I'm leaving you everything, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to promise me that you're going to go to this yeshiva and you're going to tell the, the headmaster of the yeshiva, the Rosh Yeshiva, that you would like to date the best, absolute best boy in the yeshiva and then you'll marry him and you'll support him, you'll have all this money, that we've, you know, the whole fortune that I'm leaving you, and you'll be able to 
sire a line of great rabbis. Okay? A few weeks later, she passes. And of course, there's the mourning period. But after the mourning period is over, this girl, who now is an a orphan from both sides, but with a considerable fortune, she goes to the yeshiva, and she meets with the, the headmaster, and she says, look, you know, Baruch Hashem, I, I, I have a considerable fortune, and I would like to use it to marry a man who's going to become a great Torah leader, and like to hopefully be able to start a, a line of great rabbis. I would like to be set up with the number one best boy in your yeshiva. So the rabbi says, fine. His name is Bob. I'll set it up. <laughs> you know me, I'm always with Bob, right? Okay, his name is Bob, I'm going to set it up. His name is Reuven. This is too, the best boy in the yeshiva is not Bob. Okay. His name is Reuven. So Reuven and this girl go out, and Baruch Hashem, the dating goes well, they get engaged. Now the engagements in those days were a little bit longer. And while the girl's engaged, people start telling her, you know, your mother told you you should marry the best boy in the yeshiva. The best boy, the best boy is not Reuven. It's Shimon. Shimon is the best boy in the yeshiva. Everybody knows Shimon's the best boy. And at first, it's just a little bug in her ear. But of course, people unfortunately can be so, so hurtful, right? So hurtful. You know, the, the Gemara says, when somebody buys something from the store, and they say, how do, how, do, you know, how do you like my new sweater? Now, if they're able to return it, which in America you can always return something. It's like, you know, thing. If they're able to return it and it really doesn't look good on them, and they're asking for your objective opinion, then you can be honest with them. But especially for something where they can't return it, they already took off the tags or whatever it might be. They, oh, it's beautiful, right? That's what the Gemara says. Even it's giving examples, the Gemara there is talking about when there are times when it's appropriate to bend the truth a little. It's definitely beautiful in somebody's eyes, right? Not not yours necessarily. But this person already bought a new suit. How often do they get a new suit? They got a custom-made new suit. Right? Whoa! Big dollar expenditures. Big dollar expenditures. They went out, they got a custom suit. And you just, you're just not into it at all. But they spent $800 on it, whatever it is. And, and they can't return it. There's no backseas on a custom suit. And now they say to you, oh, how do you like my new suit? I got this custom suit, whatever, to show you this, you know. And you're like, ah, it's Okay. <laughs> what are you doing? Why? The Gemara says, When the Gemara is there, talking, when you bought something in the marketplace, give, give praise for it. But unfortunately, people are so insensitive. And here's this girl, she's a Yosoma, she's, a, she's an orphan, and they start telling her, Ruvain? Really? Really? <laughs> My kids once said, someone said, how does your father discipline them, discipline you guys? I said, with the word really. Because <laughs> my kids do something wrong. I'm like, really? Really? Yeah. That's it. I don't got to say anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, whatever. They're good kids. Baruch Hashem. I'm saying, like, not always. They don't always listen to really. But then I go, are you for real? No. <laughs> anyway, so, people, she comes home. She's like, I got engaged to, to Reuben. They're like, Reuben? Really? So she can't get out of her head. And Reuben, he starts, when they start talking or whatever, he sees... She ain't looking at him the same way like she used to look at him. And he's a smart guy, Ruvain. He's a really smart guy. Whether he's number one or number two, he gets what's up. And time goes on, and it gets more and more... It's really bothering her, because also she feels like if I don't marry the number one boy in the yeshiva, 
then I'm, uh, my mother left me one instruction, right? She left me one instruction, marry the best boy in the yeshiva, and now I'm going to marry the second best, and I'm not going to ever fulfill my mother's last wishes for me. So one day, Reuven, they're on a date or whatever, and Reuven can just see what's going on. And Reuven says something amazing. Reuven says, look, I, I know what's going on. You feel like I'm not really number one, and your mother gave you very Im- implicit instructions you know, I, I don't know that I'm number one either. So I'm going to let you break the engagement. You are totally free to break the engagement. I mean, we, we can break it right now, and I'm, I forgive you 100%. She says, okay, I want what's called a star mechila. Star mechila is where you actually write a document. This is actually very important. When there's a broken engagement, often we, we ask that the two sides should write a statement to each other saying, I, I hereby forgive you. Like it's a, it makes it more real. Oh, I forgive you. No, like for real, you write it down on a document and you're very serious about it. So she says, I want, I want you to give me a shtar mechila. I want you to write down a document that you're releasing me and that you don't have any, you have no tainas on me, you have, you have no complaints against me, no nothing. He says, no problem. He writes the whole thing down. Gives it to the girl. Okay, the girl gets married to Shimon. And they move out to another town. A few years later, by now Reuven is married, a rabbi from a large yeshiva, that's not the same one, from a different yeshiva, he comes to this yeshiva, and he meets with the headmaster, he says, Rabbi, I'm looking to fill a very prestigious position in my yeshiva as one of the lead educators. I want your best guy. Who's the best guy? Bob. Uh, Ruben. Ruben. He goes by Ruben now. Who's the best guy? The best guy is Ruben. So the rabbi says, I'm, I'm happy to recommend. This is the best guy. Ruben. You should. So the, the visiting rabbi goes and meets, makes a, sets up a meeting with Ruben. And he says to him, look, I would like to invite you to take a position as a lead educator. It's prestigious. It's, you know, it pays very well. You'll have the ability to affect many, many people. The boy says, I'm not interested. You're not interested? These kind of offers don't come often, right? To get a lead, you know, like a lead position. Imagine you're getting offered to be a professor at Stanford University or whatever, you know? These are not positions that you pass it up now. This is probably not ever coming back. And he says, no, I understand, but I'm, I'm going to pass. So the, the visiting rabbi goes back to the headmaster. He says, I don't understand. You told me that he's the best guy. I came, I offered him this incredible position. Every other guy in your yeshiva would kill for this position. Well, figuratively. And um, this guy doesn't want it. So the local headmaster calls in this boy and he says, Ruben, you know, I recommended you. They came here. They're looking for the best guy. I recommended you. And you turned down the position. Why did you turn down the position? This is an incredible opportunity for you to teach Torah and to have such a great effect on the world. Listen to what this boy said. This boy said, there's an orphan out there who broke her shidduch with me because she thought that I was number two. When she finds out that I got this position, she's going to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I broke the shidduch with him. So she's going to feel bad for the rest of her life. She'll be married to Shimon, but she'll think I should have stayed with Ruvain. How could I let a Jewish girl feel that regret her whole life? Isn't that amazing? He was spurned by her because she listened to the Lashon Hara or the gossip or whatever it was. And yet he was still so sensitive to her feelings that she shouldn't spend her life feeling like I married the wrong guy. 
and I didn't fulfill my mother's wishes, and I'm stuck with Shimon now for life, and Reuben is the guy I should have married. Isn't that amazing? That sensitivity. So in the first step, he was a tzaddik. He said, "Look, if your mother said you should marry the first, the best person, and maybe I'm not the best person, I don't want to be. Ma- I don't want you to stay with me because, you know, that that, that fortune of your mother's does not belong. I, I don't want. I don't want to take anything because if your mom really wanted to be given to the best boy, go ahead. That's a tzaddik. He doesn't want to get benefit for something he didn't think was maybe necessarily his, but a tamim, a perfect one, a one who says, I'll let it go. I'm not going to take a job." Because I don't want her to feel the pain and suffering of thinking her whole life I married the wrong guy. That's a tummim. That's a perfect one. Again, these are levels way above. Way above. Most people would be like, first of all, they wouldn't let go. right? They're going to they're gonna say no to an amazing shidduch and just let it go. Say to her, I release you. Bring it up. Say, I'm going to release you. I see that you're not really so into it. That's, that's an incredible step. But then to then be so sensitive. Most people are like, see? I was always the best guy. Look, I got the job. I got the position. I'm the professor at Stanford. Where is Shimon right now? So, but he, he, that's amazing. Now, here's a very important component. The Torah tells us... No, hold on a second. I've got to find this over here. I've got all these books. All these holy books. Here we go. Okay. The Torah tells us, when it's telling us about why God destroyed the world, the language the Torah uses is, For all flesh had corrupted its ways on the world. All flesh. It doesn't say all humans. All flesh. Rashi says, even animals, the people in that generation were so promiscuous that they were involving in such immorality that human beings were just engaging with any and any, anything they wanted, whatever it was. It was an a la carte menu. Kind of like, unfortunately, like our society is trying to push for today. Whatever you want, it's okay. No problems. So it says, Rashi says, even the animals in that generation were engaging with animals of other species. As the Medrash Rabbah says, Amar Rabbi Yehuda ben Simon, Rabbi Yehuda ben Simon says, Hakol kilkalu bimasem. All, all species were acting inappropriate. Hakelev halachachar zev. The dog was trying to engage with the wolf. And the chicken with the duck. There was interspecies engagements. And therefore it says, Therefore it says, All flesh was corrupted on the world, not just the Adam. It wasn't just that humanity had messed up. It was that animals were acting in inappropriate ways. The question is, Animals don't have animals don't have a yetsahara. They don't have an evil inclination. Mankind has an has an an evil inclination. And fascinatingly, just yesterday, by the way, I went to an AA meeting. Baruch Hashem, I'm not an alcoholic, 
But it was an open meeting. Once in a while they have an open meeting. And a guy that I work with, that I learned with, somebody from our group, he is a recovering alcoholic. And it was an open meeting where he was sharing his story. And he asked me to come. Right? So, when we look at addictions in human behavior, you know, animals don't have addictions. Right? Animals don't have addictions. It's a fascinating thing. Human beings, we have so many addictions. Gamblers Anonymous, and Alcoholics Anonymous, and Overeaters Anonymous, and there's a million different... We have so many addictions. Animals don't. And in the wild, are there any obese animals? No. Animals, of course, if they're going to hibernate, right? So right now is the time, right? Right now, October time. You go to the you you know you go to the Yukon you go to Alberta you'll see all the animals all the bears are trying to stuff as many berries in their mouths as possible so they can put on some weight because they're going to go climb into a cave and not wake up for for four months so there's obviously there are times where their their cycle tells them but animals in the wild are never obese that's a hippopotamus by the way <laughs> that's a great question what about a hippopotamus thank you do you know that a hippopotamus can run over thirty miles an hour in short bursts. Yeah, they look obese, but that's actually how they're supposed to be, right? Um, you, know what a, you, know what a, you know what an obese hippopotamus looks like? I don't even know. I can't imagine. Can't really walk, right? Its stomach hits the floor and its feet just <laughs> wave in the air. Exactly. <laughs> but animals are not obese. Animals don't do drugs, right? Animal, we human beings, we have addictions. And our addictions, one of the rules of addictions... And again, this person that has open share, one of the rules of addictions are your behaviors get worse and worse and worse and worse. Because as soon as you're meeting, no one dies with half of their desires being fulfilled even. So when somebody has absolute access to all kinds of the, you know, experiences, they find that those experiences don't work for them anymore. So now they've got to go crazier. I mean, you look at certain... Certain behaviors in the sick world out there, and you're like, how did they get there? The answer was when it, when they just saw such a proliferation of the standard stuff that people just they, they doesn't it doesn't work for them anymore. So they need to go more and more extreme and do crazier and bizarre behaviors. But animals are not like that. Animals don't have a Yetzirah. So what's going on? Why are the animals acting like this? Why is the dog engaging with the welt wolf? Why is the chicken trying to marry the, the duck? So, the answer is, the answer is that we need to know that human beings, we are the focal point of the world. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us the world, he gave us the power to either build up or destroy the world. I'm going to read to you a quote from the Mesil Sharm from the Path of the Just. <laughs> the world was created for the service of mankind. How do we know this? There's so many things in the world that are totally not necessary for the animal world. For example, petroleum. Right? Petroleum does nothing for the animal world. It's only mankind that needs it and uses it. Again, maybe we overuse it. Maybe we've, you know, we've polluted the world too much. That's a different conversation for a different time. But 
There would be no need to create a world with petroleum if not for the fact that there would be people who would learn how to pull it out of the ground and use it to power planes, trains, and buses. It's a wild thing. I'll tell you who does not need petroleum. The armadillo. I'll tell you who else does not need petroleum. The pangolin. Or the aardvark. Or the zebra. Or the yak. None of them need petroleum. None of them need lithium. None of them need... There's so much in the world that is clearly here for a higher species to utilize. And animals don't know how to use any of these things. So when God created the world, God created a world that was very, very carefully calculated. Like we talked about last week, God created a custom-made world. And because God created it with petroleum, and with cobalt, and with lithium, and iron ore, right? Animals don't know how to use metal. Animals don't know how to use it. There's, obviously, God was creating the world for mankind. We are the ones who are the masters over this world, which is a great responsibility. As God says that when God took Adam, he brought him around Gan Eden, he said, this is the world, I'm giving it to you. Watch over it. Be careful not to destroy my world, because you will have that power. You will have the power and the ability to destroy the world. God told Adam, be careful. Be very careful not to destroy my world, because if you destroy it, Hashem says to Adam, who's going to fix it? Now, here's what the, the Mesos Sharm says. The world is created for the purpose of mankind. However, if a person just follows all his physical desires and gets further and further away from his spiritual core and from his spiritual creator, behold, that person will self-destruct, and he will destroy the world with him. However, if he has control over himself, but if he uses the world properly, and he uses the world to help him become a more glorified human being, a more sanctified, a more giving, a more kind, a more tolerant, more loving, a more holy, a more spiritual human being, then, he gets uplifted. The world itself will get up with him, will be get brought up with him. Which means the Torah is telling us an amazing thing. When you see the animals of the world acting in bizarre ways, Understand that it's the humankind that are driving this. We are the... It's an amazing... There's a concept called the butterfly effect. Have you heard of this butterfly, butterfly effect? There was a person who wrote a paper a long time ago, and the question was, could a butterfly flapping its wings in the Amazon cause a hurricane in Florida? Okay? And it sounds crazy, but the answer is theoretically Yes. Right, it would have to be in the right butterfly in the right time, and just but with one flap of wings, he could set off a chain of reactions because everything in the world is interconnected. From a scientific perspective, we understand that everything in the world is interconnected. When you get to advanced quantum physics, you can see where people can do something over here and it has effect 30, 40, 50 miles away, even though there being no apparent connection whatsoever. Everything in the world is interconnected. When humanity in the time of Noah started just being really perverse, when their morals had so loosened that anything was okay, everything was okay, 
the animals loosened up too. The whole world, unfortunately, became toxic. When we are toxic, the world is toxic. But here's the important thing. On the other hand, here's an amazing thing for you to know. The same butterfly effect works the other way. If you are sitting in Southfield, Michigan, coming to a class on Thursday, driving over, making the effort to sit and learn Torah, you could be uplifting the world somewhere in, in Afghanistan. There could be some Taliban guy who is thinking about, should I join? Some kid who's, should I join the Taliban? Should I just keep farming with my family? And because you took the time and effort to elevate your spirituality, that kid somehow thinks, you know what? I'll just be a farmer. I don't need to be a Taliban. Isn't that amazing? You could have that effect. It's a butterfly effect. By you flapping your wings, so to speak, over here, you could be changing the world in Afghanistan. There was a story... There's a story of... um, There was a rabbi who heard... The story happened in, in the times of Rabbi Strahl Salanter, who was one of the founders of the Musra movement. And he had a yeshiva where he had some of the greatest rabbis of all time, uh, at least of, not of all time, actually, <laughs> the greatest rabbis of his time. They were in his yeshiva. And he heard about a certain city that was not far away that had a major, major event, a major Jewish event publicly done on Shabbos in a way that was a desecration to the Shabbos. So he heard about it. He comes into Yeshiva and in his Yeshiva, I'll just say some of the names, some of them you may Rabbi Yitzchak Blozer, Rabbi Naftali Amsterdam, the, the Saba from Navardok, and whatever it is, it was some of the great rabbis. And he comes into Yeshiva that day and he bangs on the, on the bima and he starts giving a fiery speech about Shabbos and the holiness of Shabbos and how we have to be so careful with the holiness of Shabbos and we, we can't desecrate Shabbos in any way. Finally, after he gave a speech for an hour, okay, and he said we have to be mechazic ourselves, we have to strengthen ourselves to keep Shabbos better, okay. Uh, they weren't studying the laws of Shabbos. They were, they so everyone was like kind of a little mystified. Why did he come in and speak about that? So they went over to him after the shield. They said, Rebbe, we're in the middle of learning about the laws of Jewish marriage contracts, we're learning kasubas or whatever it is, we're learning the laws of meat and milk together, why did you suddenly just come in and speak about Shabbos? He said, I heard that in the city, 50, 60 miles away, there was this big event on Shabbos, a Jewish event in a way that was desecrating Shabbos. And I said, if Shabbos can be desecrated, it's because we're not doing it enough. We here in the yeshiva, of course everyone's keeping Shabbos there. You didn't have enough sanctified. You didn't sanctify it enough. You didn't feel enough holiness on Shabbos. You didn't prepare for Shabbos the best way. If there's a weakening of Shabbos over there, there must be a weakening of Shabbos over here. Jews today are suffering. Here's an amazing thing. We see the polls. You read the Pew Report. Right? The Pew, anyone, did anyone see the Pew Report? If you read the whole thing, it's, if you read the whole thing, I, I tip my hat to you because it's like, it's like 1,300 pages. So if you made it through the whole thing, Wow. I have much respect for you. Most people didn't make it through the whole thing. They, made it, they read an article or two that kind of gave you an overview of the, the Pew Report. You read the Pew Report, it's, it's, it's frightening. How many Jews are just totally disengaged? 35% of, of Jews under the age of 30 say they have no interest in religion whatsoever. We're the worst, by the way, of all the religions. 
Of course we are. We have the ability to be the best. We have the ability to be the worst. We are, the, of all the religions in America, we are the most disengaged. We just don't care. So you read that report, and you're like, oh my gosh, what can I do? You know what you can do? Engage! Wherever you are, be engaged more over here, and you will affect the whole Jewish world. It's a beautiful thing to remember. I'll tell you a story. This has more to do with prayer, but it's just so powerful because it shows you the incredible power. There was a, a weekend convention for parents who had children who had cancer. Now, there were parents in the audience who had actually lost children, and there were parents in the audience whose children had survived and had gone into remission. There was all kinds of parents. Two parents are sitting next to each other at one of the Shabbos dinners, and they start talking. One of them was from Israel. One of them was from New York. They start schmoozing. Oh, you know, who, who was sick in your family? My son. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. What happened? Whatever. This mother says, I, I had a son. He was in Israel. Passed away. Really, what was his name? His name was Yitzchak Dov. Really? Yitzchak Dov? That's, that, that's my son's name as well. Really? How old is your son? My son's 12, 13. That, that's exactly how old my son would be right now. Wow. When, when was he sick? Oh, it was 2018. 2000, that's when my son was sick. Listen to the crazy. It, it gets so crazy. It gets to the point where she says, they're talking about their experience. And now like, there's so many similarities. They're talking about their experience. It comes out that when her son was at the throes of a sickness, at one point, she decided to throw a major event to try to make storm the gates of heaven with prayers to save her son. So she rented out this place called Binyanei Uma in Israel. It's a huge, huge hall. It could fit about 5,000 people. And she brought speakers, and they had a special to, you know, to Hillim that everyone was reciting psalms. And they did it for Yitzchak Dov, Ben... Oh, I forgot. The mother's names were the same, too. Okay, so let's say it was Yitzchak Dov, Ben Rivka. And she has 5,000 people in Jerusalem davening for Yitzchak Dov, Ben Rivka. Yitzchak Dov Ben Rivka didn't make it. He didn't live. But the mother says, what was the date of your Yom Tefillah? What was the date that that happened? And she says, it was November 14th. And the mother is sitting there. She, she can't believe it. She says, You're, no. November, November 14th? She says, yeah. On November 14th, she says, my son was just, he was constantly, every time he came, the numbers were getting worse. November 14th, we brought him into the doctor for a routine checkup, and the doctor looks at us and says, I don't know what's going on over here, but he's doing way, way, way better. And that was his pivotal moment. You had 5,000 people in Jerusalem davening for Yitzchak Dov ben Rivka, or whatever the name was. And Yitzchak Dov ben Rivka doesn't make it. And people are like, maybe there were some wasted prayers there. No. Because Yitzchak Dov ben Rivka in America made it, and he's thriving. We never understand. We see Jews who are disengaging and we feel, what can we do? You know what the answer is? Engage. Learn more. Do more for Shabbos. Add a little level of kosher to your life. Whatever you can do, add a little bit more because that's going to affect those Jews over there. Okay. Next. I did promise I was going to talk to you about thievery because I know we have a couple thieves in the, in the audience. <laughs> 
my son, we were on vacation one time, and he was, we were doing this whole like, uh, game of cops and robbers. My son at that time was probably four or five years old. He says he was counting on who, who in the family is going to be what. He's like, okay, we're going to have two policemans and two thiefers. <laughs> two thiefers. Okay. The Pasuk says, for the world was filled with thievery, and I'm going to destroy the world. And I told you already, Rashi said, of all the sins that they did, there was all kinds of immorality. But what in the end made the world such a world that God said, i got to restart? It was the thievery. Now, first of all, just think about right now, where we are in our current climate. Think about how the fact that so many cities where thievery is so... I'm sure you read the headlines all the time. Stores that are just closing down, stores that are closing down in evening hours, stores that are pulling out of cities altogether, cities that have policies that we're not going to prosecute thievery under $950, right? Cities where, where thievery is allowed, you've seen the videos, like, thievery is becoming, unfortunately, commonplace flash mobs, right? Organized crime flash mobs that go to luxury goods stores. And even luxury, I was reading that luxury goods stores they will have a policy where they don't, the doors are always locked and they use bulletproof glass. These people, they're organized crime. They know how to do this. So they send some girl in who looks like she's dressed very well, like she looks like she's wealthy, and she knocks on the door. They come, they see this well-dressed girl. They say, okay, they open up the door for her, and as soon as they open the door, bam! Flash mobs come in. I read just now a letter from a CEO. A CEO of a company said, I'm moving out of the Bay Area. I'm moving out of San Francisco. They don't prosecute, they don't, they don't prosecute crime. I can't keep my workers safe. You know what I'm saying? And we see it all over. There's an enormous amount of vandalism and thiefes. <laughs> a lot of thiefes. <laughs> and God's not down with that. God is not down with that. When it came to the, the flood, right, there was, you know, you look at our generation, you think, is there a little bit of perversity and perversion yeah, I would probably assume so. That sounds like it was in the, day of the days of the flood. But what was the final straw on the camel's back in the flood? It was the thievery. And that's, we see that a lot right now. It says like this. The Medrash Tanchuma says, Be very, very careful not to steal anything and not to take anything that belongs to your friend because there is nothing more severe than the sin of thievery. Because Rebbe Lazar said, All the... The, the people in the generation of the flood did all, the, all kinds of sins, all the sins in the book, so to speak. They checked off all the boxes. <laughs> you know, it's like, I've got three states left to go, right? I've got to get to Oklahoma, Alaska, and Hawaii, right? That's my three. I, hopefully when I hit those three, I'll have gone to all 50 states, right? I'm really, really looking forward to traveling to uh, Oklahoma. Yeah. <laughs> so... You know, it's like the people in those days, also like they have these passports where you go to like national parks and there's a different stamp or a different, you know, people try to collect the coin from each Now I went to Yellowstone, I went to Yosemite, I went to Zion, I went to Bryce, I went to Canyons, I went to Arches, right? And when I went to Glacier, so there are little mementos and you try to say, I went to all the national parks, I went, you know. So people in the, day, in the generation of the flood, they used to check off all the sins, you know. I, I, I beat my parents, I, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I yelled obscenities. <laughs> you know, it's like I had to, and so it says they they ticked off all the boxes. They checked all the boxes. They did everything wrong in that generation. But what was the one that got them? It was thievery. What? That's that's what what God ended up saying. I, I can't handle a world like that. 
Ramban, Nachmanides explains, because it's, this is, you know, you could say, I don't understand what's so wrong. You know, theoretically, by the way, we talk about who creates ethics and morality, right? So, if you don't believe in God, if you don't believe that there's an, an, a creator of the world, then anything can be ethical, right? God forbid, I mean, God forbid, you know, there, the Jewish world has, like, laws against, you know, incest, who says incest is wrong? The Torah. It's not for the fact that God created that. We all, humans, mostly understand that it's wrong. But there are, let's imagine, I mean, there was a society that says there could be no greater love than between a brother and a sister. Why should that be, you know, wrong? Without God, there's no sense of immorality. So, God, but, but when it comes to thievery, we all understand it at a base level. Everyone in the world understands that thievery is wrong. Because you don't want your stuff stolen. You get that. Like, you could say, I don't know what's wrong with eating pig. I don't, I get it. No problem. Eating pig is indeed hard to figure out what's wrong with it, other than the fact that God said don't eat pig. Right? But everyone understands thievery. When you have a society that is so broken down that everyone is doing that which is patently understood as destructive to society, and we turn the other way, that is a society that will not be able to thrive. And God says, that's it. I got to start over again. A society that's so destructive that it, it... is fully, wholly engaged in thievery, and everyone is involved in the graft somewhere. Some people are taking political donations that are illegal under the table, and some people are, you know, allowing thieves to, to, to run rampant in cities, and some people are being the thieves who run rampant in cities, and some people, there's so many different kinds of levels of culpability. And indeed, it says in the Medrash Rabbah and Vayikra Rabbah, Kupa Malaya Avonos, if there's a if a person comes to heaven with a box full of sins, which one is the first one they're going to pull out to prosecute you with? Thievery. Now the reality is, I assume that there are not a lot of thiefs in this room. But there may be, you just don't realize it. The Masil Sharm, and I want to read this very carefully, because this is very important. The Masil Sharm says, Masil Sharm is the path of the just, the ultimate textbook of ethical development. He says in chapter 11, which explains the details of the, tra- of, of the character trait of Nikios, of cleanliness. Okay, The idea of cleanliness is that you're so pure of sin that even things that... There, there are certain sins that are obvious, and then there are sins that are... People go this way and that way, and then, you know, I don't know if it's so bad, whatever. Or they, they, they find ways to make it okay because they want it so badly. So in this he explains that one of the most common sins where people find ways to make it moral or ways to make it okay is thievery. He says like this. He says, we we see that most people, very few people, are actually putting their hands in someone else's pocket and taking out money. Right? Very few people are putting their hands in someone else's pocket and taking out money. That's like, you feel really uncomfortable doing that. Right? However... There is a Chazal that says, Rubam Begazel. Most people are engaged in some way of thievery. What am I stealing, Rabbi? Okay. Let's go through a different uh, a list of things that you might be engaging in thievery without realizing. Gezel Shena. Stealing sleep. You walk into your room, and you're not careful, your spouse, or you walk into your kid's room, or you walk into your parents' room, and you're not careful to be quiet and tiptoe around, and you wake up somebody, you're stealing their sleep. You can't even give it back to them. How are you going to pay them back? Here, I'll give you three extra minutes of sleep. 
you, you can't pay back s- sleep. Gnevas das! Stealing someone's mind. How does that work? You go into a store, and you browse, and you find all the best products, and then you go online and order them for cheaper on Amazon. Now, there are times where stores will allow you to do that. Because they're hoping that... You're gonna, they know that you also have your phone and you can order any product, but they're hoping that when you're in there, you have a good experience in the store, maybe you'll, maybe you'll stay, maybe you'll buy. However, let's say there's a salesperson who says, can I help you? And you say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to buy something. Meaning, there's this, not just regular browsing. If you walk into Walmart and you find a product, you're like, I think I can find this cheaper on Amazon. And you look it up and you can find it cheaper on Amazon. No big deal. Walmart's okay with that. But if you're walking into a boutique or a clothing store and the sales lady comes over, can I help you with something? Oh yeah, I, was, I, was, I wanted to get a sweater. And you make it sound like she's thinking now, I, I, a lot of these salespeople get some kind of commission. They're thinking they're going to get a commission, and they're helping you with the sweater. And you're like, okay, thank you so much. I'll, I'll, I'll see. Maybe I'll come back. You have no intention of coming back. You're going to find it online for cheaper. That's stealing someone's mind. Right? In business, often we overstate the value. You're like, I'm telling you. you know, for example, people say all the time, they say something like, look, if you don't want to buy it, i got three other buyers lined up. And maybe that's not true. You're stealing, right? Because you're making the person believe it's more valuable than it is. If they're negotiating a price, by you telling them, look, you know, I, you, don't, you don't have to take my price, but I'm telling you, I've got three other buyers lined up, and you don't. You're literally stealing from the person. And that's a common business tactic. If a person is not paying their taxes properly, they could be stealing from everybody. There's, there's so many areas in our lives so I just think it's important to recognize that we have to be so very, very careful. Here, here's another example. I'm in someone's house, and they, they, they went off to go get something, and I, I need to jot something down. I just grab their pen, and I jot something down. Am I allowed to do that? No, the pen belongs to them. I didn't ask permission to use their pen. I know it sounds crazy. Oh, you think they care? They don't care. Of course they don't care. But it's not your pen. You're not allowed to use it. There was a yeshiva where there was a coin, okay, a coin that was the equivalent of a quarter, okay, a coin that was the equivalent of a quarter that stayed on the same place on a windowsill for 20 years, because no one would touch it, it's not mine, I don't touch it, right, a quarter, who cares, it's a quarter, it's been here for 10 years already. I just need an extra quarter to put in the... I, I, I want to buy a soda, it's $1.50, and I only have five quarters. I just grabbed the quarter, it's been sitting there for 10 years. No one's coming to claim it. It sat there for 20 years. Oh, what happened after 20 years? That's a great mystery. Okay. <laughs> I want to share one more idea. <clears throat> I want to share one more quick idea from this week's parsha. An amazing medrash sochar tov. Okay, there's a medrash sochar tov that is found in the Yalkut Shimoni. Listen to this fascinating story. Everything had to come to the ark in pairs, right? Remember, Hashem says, "Take everything to the ark." Shnayim, shnayim, Everything should come to the ark in pairs. Falsehood comes to the ark and says, Hey, Noah, will you let me in? 
And Noah says, I'm sorry, you don't have a, you don't have a pair. Where's he going to find a pair? So Falsehood starts walking around. Can I find a pair? He goes to Honesty. Honesty's like, no, I'm already paired up with diligence. You know? He goes to, uh, you know, he goes to every, no one wants to be, no one wants to be paired up with Falsehood. He's getting desperate. The flood is coming. He's better. He's got to get on that boat if he wants to make it onto the next part of the, to the world reset. And definitely, dishonesty wanted to make it into the world. What does the Medrash Sokar Tov say? And again, of course, this is allegorical. Okay, there's not a true story. You know what happened? So finally, falsehood comes over to destruction. No one wants to do the destruction either, right? Think about it. These are, these are two guys who are getting called last to the basketball game. Dishonesty and destruction. <laughs> so dishonesty says to destruction, look, I want to make a deal with you. This is what kind of deal? He says, I want to get on the table. I want to get on the ark. And destruction says, yeah, I know, me too. No one, we, these are the two last people. No one invited them to the prom. So dishonesty says, come with me. Come with me, destruction. Come with me. Destruction says, what will you give me? So dishonesty says, I'll make you a deal. Anything that I gain, you can destroy. And that was the deal they made. And since then, any kind of ill-begotten gains that we make through dishonesty will go get destroyed. We may not see it right away. But if we think that we can benefit by being dishonest, no. Everything that a person makes through dishonesty will end up getting gobbled up by destruction. Whether you see it right away, or you see it in 10 years, or in 100 years, or whatever it is, but everything. Destruction will come and collect its debt. Now, of course, I was thinking it would have been so much cooler. How much cooler would it have been if destruction would have said, okay, I'll, I'll make you a deal. If you give me half of your gains, I'll go in the ark with you. And then they go in the ark together, they make it out through the other side, and then destruction starts taking all dishonesty's gains. And dishonesty is like, wait, we made a deal. I only gave you half. And destruction would be like, I lied. <laughs> but at last, that is not the measure. The measure is that dishonesty and destruction made a deal. And that's why it's always worth it to take the high road in business, in relationships, in our community. It's always worth it to take the high road. Rather, a person should lose a little bit of money here and there but not be involved in anything that's even tinged with dishonesty, with lying, with stealing, even the small little kinds, the many kinds of stealing. The stealing of, I, I, I made a statement when I was selling the item, oh yeah, I've got three buyers lined up. Anything, 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 because anything we get through dishonesty will be eaten by destruction, so God willing, we should all do everything, all of our affairs, with the utmost of honesty, and this should, we, should, we should recognize that whatever we do here has an effect all over the world. There is a butterfly effect for the world, if we see that Jewish identity is weakening, we can strengthen ours and we'll fill the whole world with greater identity. And thank you for doing just that by coming here and strengthening your learning and your Torah. You should all be benched. Thank you for coming. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being awesome. Alrighty. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.